Would you please, please turn with me to Mark chapter 3? For 2,000 years, people have been wondering what to do with Jesus. We're going to look at a portion of Scripture today where we have individuals who weren't sure exactly what to do with Jesus. There is going to be a very, very big picture thing that's taking place in the ministry of Christ, in His work of taking over sin in this world. There's also something very, very personal that we're going to be able to gain from this text today. When we think of individuals who are seeking what to do with Christ, many people teach through the Scriptures and try to give direction. There have been many good authors that help with this as well. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis gives the following paragraph. It's a little bit lengthy, but it's my opinion that the text we're going to study today was probably the inspiration for what Lewis is saying in this paragraph. And then we'll, we'll, we'll uh, come back to this paragraph at the end of our time. He writes, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says that he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that an option for us. He did not intend to. So many people are wondering what to do with Jesus Christ. The message of the New Testament is clear, how you and I are supposed to respond to Him. But not everybody knew exactly how to respond. In Mark chapter 3, we're going to look at two specific groups and how they responded in a very, very different way to our Lord. And as we look at these groups, we're going to see that Jesus is going to open up a major principle of his victory over sin and get very, very personal. He's going to get personal for some of you in this way. What you may see in God's Word today is that whatever it is that's keeping you from taking that next step in your walk with God, there are some that feel there's something that's holding you down. There are some that feel that you're trapped by something. And Jesus Christ is going to address that as we look at him today. All that to take us to Mark chapter 3. If you're using one of our hymn Bibles, it's page 950. And please keep that Bible if you do not have a Bible of your own as a gift from us to you. 
Now, understand that Jesus, at this point in his ministry, it was marked by at least two things. His ministry is marked by his teaching. He did not teach as others taught. This wasn't just somebody who had learned something recently, not just someone who was a couple steps ahead of the group, but he taught not only knowing what he was saying, but believing what he was saying. He taught with authority. That's one of the things that marked his ministry with the people at this point. And the other thing was his authority. He had authority to teach. He had authority over the weather. He had authority over death and over sickness. And today he's going to let us in on one more thing that he has authority over. It applies in a small way, and it also has immense implications for each of us. Now, with Jesus being an upstart preacher in the area, you may have thought that several folks would have responded well to this. I know for me and my family, there's some that are very happy that I'm a pastor, that I'm serving the Lord in ministry. My dad tells me that all the time when I talk to him. I'm so proud of you for what you're doing. This was not the case with Jesus' family. He was preaching. He was doing great and mighty works. And they are very, very worried about him. Some may think that the religious leaders would be happy that some sinners are turning away from their sin and turning to God. That you might think that the people that were the ones that were uh, influential in Jerusalem would be thrilled that there was a new preacher out there. And that is wrong as well. Those are the two different groups that we're going to look at today. The first thing that I see here in our text, we're going to start in verse number 20, and the first thing that I see is that Jesus' family was afraid that he had lost his mind. Now, they weren't being mean, they're being protective. You can understand what this means if you have someone in your family that you feel is going a wrong direction. You know what it is to feel for them and even to say, what can I do to help out? We look at this family and they just want to help. We might call this today an intervention. You guys know what an intervention is. When someone is going down a road that you don't want them to go down, you might step in. You might try to give them some counsel. Well, Jesus' family is going to go further than that. It's not just giving him some helpful advice. They're actually going to go and try to take him by force back home to Nazareth. We're going to start there in verse number 20 now, but let me, we're going to read two verses, and then we're going to jump toward the end of the chapter because we find Jesus, um, the response of his family to him in the beginning, and then in the end of the chapter, we find how Jesus responds to them trying to help him out. And it's one of those passages that makes us scratch our heads. Jesus was perfect. There was no one like him. And yet what he says makes some of us think, maybe he could have said it in a nicer way than that. It almost comes off as rude, but it's not rude. We'll start in verse number 20 of Mark 3. Then he went home, and the crowds gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Skip down to verse 31. 
and his mother and his brothers came, standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whosoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. The Bible is clear that Mary and Joseph had children after Jesus Christ was born. He had at least three brothers that we know of. He had sisters. But none of them, as far as we can tell from the Bible record, accepted him as Messiah until after his resurrection. So this is the family having the conversation about Jesus, who was a perfect older brother. Anybody here else? Anybody here have a perfect older brother? I did not. I never had a perfect older brother. My daughter's hand is not raised either. No perfect older brother here. Some of you maybe had a pretty good older brother. Jesus was the perfect older brother. They loved him. It's likely he stepped in as kind of a surrogate when Joseph died at some point. But now Jesus has left the family business. And that's one reason they're concerned. He had been taught a trade. Do you think Jesus was a pretty good carpenter? What do you think? Yes or no? <laughs> yeah. Now, it's my opinion that over there in Israel, they don't have the kind of trees and forests like we have here. It's very possible that Jesus was a carpenter using stone, masonry. It's very possible. But no matter what he worked with, he was perfect at it. But he leaves the family business. It's not just that he leaves the family business because he's got a better job opportunity. He's going to go and wander. So just to get inside the heads of this family, how would you feel if your son had a good opportunity, a good job, was going to get a paycheck, have some stability, and he said, I'm going to quit that job and I'm going to go hitchhike across Europe for a summer. How, how would you feel about that? Not too good, right? So he's giving up a great job. Another reason why they would be concerned was because Jesus is making some serious enemies. He is speaking against the religious leaders. Remember the religious leaders in Christ's day had a lot of influence and a lot of power. And just to be fair, they didn't bring Jesus up like that. He was to be very respectful. He's leaving the family, family business, and now he's challenging the authorities that are around him. And another part of the family talk, I was in the marketplace today, and I think that I heard that Jesus was hanging out at a tax collector's house. Well, but did, did you hear what happened last week? There was a prostitute that came in, and he allowed the prostitute to wash his feet right there in front of everybody. Can you understand why his family would have concern? Now, I think Mary knew so much more than everybody else, but she seems to be with this group that's going to get Jesus and take him back. They had not accepted him as the Messiah yet. And the only conclusion that they could come to by looking at all that Jesus was doing was, he's, he's not thinking clearly. He's not in his right mind. And so we find the response of the family, it is disapproval and it is protection. They want to protect Jesus. Now we're going to pivot 
from the family to the religious leaders. Because just as the family had heard about what was going on around the Sea of Galilee, these great crowds, this incredible teaching, the religious leaders had heard as well, and they weren't happy about it. They had already marked Jesus as an enemy of what they were trying to do. And when we say religious leaders in Jerusalem, you need to understand these were not ones that were pointing to God. They had given themselves over to darkness. They still had ritual. They still had religion, you might say. But they were not genuinely looking for the Messiah or else they would have seen Him in front of them. And Jesus has some very, very strong words about this. The family disapproves. They want to protect now the religious leaders. And they're going to have a strategy. And what I see next here in our study is that Jesus' enemies are going to say, well, He's getting His power from the devil. There's something supernatural going on, but it is not of God. It's empowered by Satan. Jesus was different than any religious leader they had ever seen. It would be common for a religious leader, the more important they got, that the more they would be separated from the common people. But that wasn't Jesus. The more successful Jesus got, the more time He gave to them. We don't find a huge buffer zone between Christ and the people. He was with them, meeting their needs, healing. One of my favorite descriptions of Jesus Christ is that He looked upon the crowds and He had compassion. Totally different than any of them in Jerusalem. And so they have a powwow all the big shots, what are we going to do? Because we cannot deny that something supernatural is going on. Because when you go out into the marketplace, there's one who he gave the ability to walk after he was crippled. And when we go over to Capernaum, there's one who was blind and now he can see. What are we going to do? We cannot deny there's something supernatural going on. Okay, we'll give him that, something supernatural, but let's say it's not from God, but instead it's from the devil. They are going to accuse him of being a sorcerer. Instead of saying he's from God, they're going to say his allegiance is to the prince of the power of the air. Look in verse number 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But 
No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder the house. If you're one who likes to organize your thoughts and outline the Bible, Jesus gives us a very nice one here. He starts out with a big picture, the kingdom, a kingdom that is divided is going to fall. Then he gets a little bit more narrow. If there's a house, that house is divided, it's going to fall. And then to an individual. If Satan himself is divided, he cannot stand. They paint him as a sorcerer. And Jesus Christ, it is always a pleasure for me to read about Jesus' interactions with those that would oppose him. It's always wonderful. Jesus was God, but I don't think that he demonstrated that deity all the time. I think, in fact, I think it was rare. But apart from his deity, he was always the smartest guy in the room. His brain, his mind had not been affected by sin at all. Photographic memory. He was a genius. So it was always great to see Jesus interacting with people that opposed him. (laughs) But having said all of that, this route that they go, this argument to try to do away with him having influence, this is a loser from the start. He doesn't need his deity. He doesn't need to be the smartest guy in the room because what they're saying is nonsense. He very easily says, if there is a house or a kingdom, an individual that is divided, they will not stand. In essence, Jesus is saying this, okay, I've been involved in exorcisms. There's no denying this. And what you are going to try to convince these people of is that when I cast the demon out of that girl that was at the bidding of the devil himself, and my sarcastic thinking jumps in, I'm sure Christ didn't say this, I don't think he was sarcastic, but you can just imagine him knowing that there's going to be a trial that would send him to the cross. I can just imagine him thinking, you guys might want to rethink if you want to make that one of the charges that I cast out demons by the power of the devil himself because what you're saying is nonsense. It'll never stick. Good luck with that at my trial. He says, you guys aren't making any sense and then he pivots. That doesn't make sense, but let me tell you what does make sense regarding the devil. If there is someone who is strong and you want to go in and take what he has, you want to take his possessions, you must first bind that strong man and then you can go in and take his possessions. He's giving a parable here. It's not a very deep parable that we don't understand. It's pretty clear. The strong man is the devil who has hold of so many at that time. And we're going to make a small application and a big application. There were some that the devil had a hold of, of demon possession. They had seen this. It was obvious Christ would cast out demons. And so there was a small hold the devil had. But more than that, you need to understand that what Jesus Christ is doing is big picture. This 
world that was so influenced by the power of the prince of the air, the devil himself, Jesus is coming to bind him. That power will be no more. The strong man is Satan, and who is going to oppose him? It is Jesus Christ himself. And the reason why Jesus Christ came was to free those who are held captive by the devil. I'm not just speaking about those ones where he cast out a demon in his day. If you're wondering what to do with Jesus today, the reason why he came was to give freedom to those who are held captive. Jesus came to liberate those who are trapped. And so many, even who have given their their heart to Jesus Christ, still walk in such a way that they feel they're trapped. There's this sin that I've struggled with for years and I can't get victory over it. There's this step, this promise I keep making to God and I keep breaking that promise. And so many of us allow ourselves to think that the devil has a hold on our lives and it is a trap that we cannot get out of. Jesus clearly came for you. Yes, to save you, but beyond that, so you could take the next step in your walk with Him. And as verse 27 there says, then indeed He may plunder His house. The devil will have all of the power that you think He might have over you. It will become void. And so the captivities of of self-centered focus, the captivities of sexual addiction, the captivity of an unkind tongue. And each of us needs to look within because oftentimes we feel there's something that we are unable to get victory over. Someone stronger than the devil has come to set you free. Unless someone comes who is stronger, there is no hope. And there is always, there is always hope in Jesus. I can remember talking to a friend of mine years ago and having a conversation about a very difficult situation. And I said, well, this is the problem and this is what we hope might happen. Or do you just think there is no hope? And he said, oh, Jeremy. There is always hope. The reason there's always hope is because Jesus is stronger than the enemy. And this is why the poet would write the words so many years ago, death could not keep his prey, Jesus my Savior. He tore the bars away, Jesus my Lord. Up from the grave he arose. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. I have to believe that the devil, when Jesus was walking in the world, that the devil oftentimes thought he was having some success, getting some victories. I think that we can see the devil's involvement in, in the passion of Christ, in his crucifixion. 
Maybe you can recall one example of when the devil was involved at that point, maybe when the devil, the demon entered Judas and he went to bring the men to arrest Jesus. There are other areas where I think the devil thought, this is a win, this is a win, talking to his demons. And I think that when Christ was on the cross, the devil very possibly could have been so deceived to think this is a win. And what he did not understand is that when Jesus died and when he rose again, every kind of advantage the devil has over anyone was made into nothing because Christ died for our sins. And he's left us here, not just to be thinking about heaven, but to thinking about what he wants us to do. Whatever that might be that's holding you back, if you think there's a trap that he's got, just this one area of your life, Jesus is stronger and Jesus can set you free. Jesus' family was worried. These people couldn't stand Jesus and so they made a false accusation about him. And then Jesus is very, very clear. It is not only that their accusation is a bad accusation is going to fail, but now Jesus gives them a stern warning. Woe to you, is the words that comes to my mind. He says something to them, something to them that most of us are familiar with. The passage we're going to cover next is a verse that many, many people know, but many people don't really understand it. So we're going to talk about that. He is frank with them. He has done miracles. He is the coming Messiah. He is the one the prophets have talked about. They could not deny this. And even with this great understanding, what they're going to do is they're going to accuse the Messiah of acting on behalf of the devil. And so he is going to talk to them about the sin that they have committed that will not be forgiven. Or what we commonly call today the unpardonable sin. Now, before we start reading in verse number 28, I want to ask you to go through your memory of sins that were committed in the Bible by people who ended up in the place of forgiveness. Can you think of someone who committed murder and they were forgiven and are going to be in heaven? Can you think of somebody in the Bible there? Sure. Can you think of somebody who committed multiple murders and they were forgiven? How about rape? All the sins that you can think of that you think this might be the worst of the worst, we can find examples of just about all of those in the Scriptures where they were forgiven. So let's look here, starting in verse 28. As Jesus moves from saying, that's a dumb thing to say, now He's going to give them a warning. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemes they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. So these who were opposing Jesus Christ, Jesus says, you have committed the unforgivable sin. I commend this to you as a study. It's a fascinating study to do on your own. You can read through it and and see what men wiser than I think of it. 
There are some who argue that committing the unforgivable sin is not even an option today because we can't recreate the same situation. Here were religious leaders that had seen, they knew the miracles of Christ, and they were denying that He was the Messiah, denying they were from God, and accusing Him of working on behalf of the devil. And so, some, as they study through this, would say, there's not even an option for this sin to happen again because we don't have that same situation. They chose darkness rather than light. But I know what some of you are thinking. Can I commit the unforgivable sin? Is there something I can do where I won't be forgiven? Over the years, I've heard at least two preachers tell stories of someone that they think committed the unforgivable sin, the unpardonable sin. Neither one of those preachers knew the person. They were telling a story of someone else that told a story. So you're kind of getting it third hand here, or maybe fourth or more. And some individuals look at that, and there are some people that maybe you'll rub shoulders with they are afraid they've committed this. I don't think I've inter- in- encountered someone who's told me I've committed the unpardonable sin, so I can't be forgiven. I can't go to heaven. How are we supposed to deal with this? I think this is the best way for us to understand this today. The unpardonable sin is an unbeliever continuing in their unbelief until the point of death. It is a knowledge of who God is. It is a knowledge of the offer of salvation. It is an ongoing willful rejection of the Holy Spirit and the saving power of Christ. Maybe you will encounter someone, maybe you already have, who thinks they've committed the unforgivable sin. Well, we can study this passage in Mark chapter 3, but there are several other, several other passages that I want you to take them to. One of them is Acts chapter 16 and verse 31, where it says this, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. You cannot know when someone's last breath is going to be. And I guess if you're with someone at their deathbed and they reject Jesus dogmatically at that point, we might call that the unforgivable sin. But this is not something that anyone should walk around worrying about. They've done something that will not be forgiven. And so as we close our time studying this, I want to bring you back to the big picture. This is epic. The devil is responsible for sin coming into this world. And the devil had control, and the devil had power, and Jesus Christ invaded this world. And he proved that he was stronger, and he did all that for you. So you could have forgiveness of your sins, but also so you could have power over every little step where you think, I can't get over this hurdle. I can't get over this one. Jesus is more powerful. But the devil is not simply just going to roll over. He won't do it. He doesn't just say, oh, look what happened. The tomb is empty. 
Guys, let's just call it a day. He is fighting for everything that he can for two things, to keep individuals from following after God, giving their lives to him. He wants to take as many as he can to hell with him. And then for those who he cannot have, he wants you to be ineffective. He wants to lie to you and make you think that you have a trap that will not allow you to have that relationship with Jesus like you want to have. What can we do with a message like this? We need to fully embrace that Jesus is stronger than any enemy, any trap, any speed bump that you are facing. Jesus is stronger. You are not trapped. And so we need to follow back with how we started. C.S. Lewis knew that so many people wanted to call Jesus just a good person. But if he claimed to be God, and he wasn't, then he's not a good person. His family thought he was crazy. They were going to go and protect him. The religious leaders tried to discredit him. Yep, he's powerful, but his power is coming from Satan. And for you and I today, we have to answer this question. Is he a lunatic? Or is he a deceiver? Or Is Jesus Christ exactly who He said that He was, the Messiah? And not only does He give us the power to have salvation and victory over death, but He can give you the power to break free from any trap that is holding you today There's a strong man there. Someone stronger has to come in and bind that strong man. Satan has been bound. And you and I, hallelujah, can have victory. You have been left here to walk in victory. The devil doesn't want you to believe that. He wants you just to be thinking about heaven and thinking that you're stuck. God wants us to remember that greater is He that is in you, if you know Jesus, than He that is in the world. Would you pray with me? We love you, Father. We love you for including us in this story. How beautiful the one that walked this earth 2,000 years ago and had compassion and taught and gave His life for us so that we could have eternal life and so that we could have victory. And I praise you for this lesson about His enemy. May we understand what is accessible to us. It is not us ourselves, acting stronger, building our arsenal, figuring out how to do it. It is us tapping into the power of Jesus Christ because He has gone in and He has bound up our enemy. While the piano plays today, I want to give you a chance to pray. It's likely that there's an area in your life that you feel if you just could get victory over this or get help in this way or get past this struggle 
you'd be closer to God. Talk to the Lord right now. He already knows what it is, so go ahead and name it in your mind. But confess to Him that you believe Jesus is stronger, stronger than any chains that would hold you. It could be that you've heard this message today and you've never experienced the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Christ on this journey is going to a cross. He would die for your sins. You are a sinner. The punishment for that sin is separation from God forever. But you could be confident that when you're done in this world that you will be with Jesus if you will just ask him for forgiveness. Ask God to forgive you of your sins based on his work on the cross and make you his child. And he promises, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen.